where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. And you are wanted and you are valued here. We have stories of faith that connect us, whether you're in Connecticut, Colorado, the United States, or Europe, or anywhere in the world. So I have to tell you that in preparing for today, there are, and this is not an exaggeration, there are at least 25 pieces of paper completely filled on my desk with notes. I love this practice that we're going to talk about this morning. In fact, it has been the foundation of my life for as long as I can remember. And what that means is that I'm not perfect at it. But it's something that I committed to long before I knew that I had committed to it. And so, for your sake, I have tried to condense those notes into a single coherent message, but I offer an apology in advance uh, because honestly, we could talk about this for weeks upon weeks upon weeks. And if you'd like to talk more this week, come on Wednesday at 11 o'clock to the courtyard. Bring your own chair, bring a mask, and let's have a conversation because as I said, I would love to say more. So let's start with scripture. A reminder, if scripture is new to you, that Christian scriptures were written by and for people who were under savage persecution. This really is not a manual on life. This is a manual out of persecution. The narrative spine of all of scripture is the message of God's liberation. Scripture is a movement. It's not a how-to book. And in the first century, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And this is really important because all of these scriptures were written before that time. But in the first century, as the official religion, the emperor worked to establish a clear set of beliefs. Now, the emperor didn't do it by themselves. They developed a team of people to do this. But when you hear me say the emperor worked to establish a clear set of beliefs, the people of God should say, uh-oh, this isn't good. This is not good because some things were probably sanitized or manipulated to, to advance an agenda that might have been different from an agenda that is written and reflective of God's liberation. So as an emperor, as someone who is uh, in charge, if you will, the top of the feeding chain, it's easily, it's easily confused, and it can be confusing that is it the power of God or is it my power as an emperor? That is most important. And power can be very seductive. So it's important to remember this when you're looking at scripture that over time, it has been influenced by its domination 
as a dominant religion, it moves itself out of the fringe and it's easy for it to lose some of its impact as a movement of liberation. There's a reason why reading scripture was forbidden for people who were historically enslaved and oppressed. Because to get even just a taste of it would be to enlighten or to illumine a room that was previously dark. Clarence Jordan is a was a farmer. He has he has died. Uh, he's a farmer. Was a farmer and a New Testament scholar. He was also a white man, and he wanted to offer a sense of participation to the modern readers when it came to scripture. He didn't want it to be about a faraway place in a faraway land that nobody knew. He lived in the rural south, and he was the founder of Konania Farm, which was an interracial fellowship that rejected violence. And he started to translate the New Testament in what is known as the Cotton Patch Gospel. He didn't finish, but in his works, Jerusalem is Atlanta. And the different groups, as hard as it was, he tried to say, who are these groups today? And put it in there so that people could get a sense of, um, of really what this movement is about. Two of the things that I love about this translation is that rather than talking about the kingdom of God, that can again be confusing. You know, if you're a king and you have power, you want yourself to be the king, not necessarily God to be the king, and it's hard to share power in that way. He talks about, instead of the kingdom of God, the God movement. And instead of saying that classic line, if, if you've heard this story over and over and over again, you're familiar with this line when Jesus begins his ministry and he says, repent for the kingdom of God has come near. Clarence says, reshape your lives for God's new order of the spirit is confronting you. And I love that image because that has been my experience too, that the, the Spirit confronts us. And sometimes it can feel, the internal reaction can feel like this, right? Being confronted. But what we're being confronted with is the places within ourselves and within our thinking that have not been illuminated the places that still serve as a foundation for a dichotomy between us and them, or a superiority of someone over someone else, a system of dominance or of hierarchy. So let me read to you this morning's scripture from this Cotton Patch Gospel, and, and it's close enough that it'll still sound familiar if, if you know this part of the Sermon of the Mount from Matthew's Gospel. You've also heard the saying, take an eye for an eye, take a tooth for a tooth. But I'm telling you, never respond with evil. Instead, if somebody slaps you on your right cheek, offer him the other one too. And if anybody wants to drag you into court and take away your shirt, let him have your undershirt. If somebody makes you go a mile for him, go two miles. Give to him who asks of you and don't turn your back on anyone who wants a loan. Another thing you've always heard is love your own group and hate the hostile outsider. But I'm telling you, love the outsiders and pray for those who try to do you in 
so that you might be sons of your spiritual father or siblings of your spiritual parent. For God lets the sun rise on both sinners and saints and sends rain on both good people and bad. Listen here, if you love only those who love you, what's your advantage? Don't even scalawags do that much? And if you speak to no one but your friends, how are you any different? Don't the non-Christians do as much? Now you, you all must be mature as your spiritual parent is mature. So if you haven't guessed already, the peace practice for today is nonviolent resistance. And I just offer two really simple definitions. Uh, our definition for violence this morning is using harm to create an outcome. Nonviolent resistance is promoting change without violence. The commonality of the two is the impression that something's got to change. When we're talking about nonviolent resistance, we have to contend with really three things. We have to contend with the instinct of self-preservation, which lodges in our brainstem from our early development. So we have to breathe our way into the neocortex, which is in the front of the brain. And we also have to contend with our self-interest. I've already mentioned this uh, without calling it that, but it's the us versus them mentality. The belief somehow that we are separate and some are better than others. Um, if this virus is teaching us anything, it's how closely connected we are and how much we influence each other's health and well-being. So self-preservation as instinct, self-interest, us versus them, and the greater good, which understands that it's just us. We are one human family. We are one created entity, which includes all of creation, plants and animals and the solar systems. It's just us. So we have to contend with those things, but we also have to contend with our beliefs about violence. Erica Chenoweth is a political scientist who spent a lot of time in Colorado. She was at uh, CU Boulder. She was at the University of Denver. And now she's at Harvard. And early on in her PhD work, uh, which was, um, her, her hypothesis was that violence was needed to create change. And she believed that while tragic, that violence um, was logical and necessary. And nonviolent resistance was well-intended, but definitely naive. As one of the political scientists in the area, she was invited to this workshop, or as a PhD student, she was invited to a workshop where they were trying to teach people about nonviolent resistance and nonviolent strategies. And so she went. And with those beliefs that I just shared with you, as she said, she was not very popular that week. She was not going to be converted. And someone went up to her who ended up being a co-author of a book that they wrote and said, you know, I heard what you said this week. Uh, are you curious enough 
to study it and see if there's empirical data to support your beliefs. Now, you've probably heard the expression that love is three-quarters curiosity. Curiosity is a wonderful way to get into places that we might otherwise reject or resist. That's why interracial marriage, that's why same-gender marriage, all of those things, love has entered into it and entered into families that were previously rejecting things, and now suddenly it's their daughter, their son, their non-binary child has now brought someone else to the table. And so without using the language of love, this woman went up to Erica and said, are you curious enough to test it? And she said, yeah, I am. Well, you must know where this is going. Because what they did together was they tested throughout the entire world all of the campaigns, both violent and nonviolent, that included more than 1,000 people. And they did this from 1900 to 2006, and then they even extended it to 2014. And the results were the same. Nonviolent movements were more than two times more effective than violent movements. The duration of a nonviolent campaign was typically, or on average, about three years, and a violent campaign, nine years. Much longer. Nonviolent campaigns attracted 11 times more people. Using force against unarmed people leads to even more support of nonviolent campaigns. Now, I think you're probably now going back in your mind to some footage that we've all seen, whether it's historic or current, of violence used against unarmed people and how it promoted outrage. It generated outrage to have this visual evidence and graphic examples of savage persecution. It worked against itself. And that's one of the beauties of nonviolence is that it exposes and magnifies brutality. It has that effect. Now, historically thinking, some of the leaders that may be coming to mind are the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. James Lawson comes to my mind. Contemporary leaders are the Reverend Dr. William Barber who is um, the leader of the Poor Persons Campaign. But James Lawson, who may not be as familiar to you, tells a story of what happened to him in fourth grade. His mom sent him on an errand. And James is a black man. And in fourth grade, he was a black young boy. And somebody called him a really mean name. And he went up to him, and he smacked him. He went home, and he was telling his mom this story. And without even turning toward him, his mother said, Jimmy, what good did that do? And then a few moments later, still not turning toward him, she said, Jimmy, there must be a better way. Jimmy went on to be a missionary in India, and he studied Gandhi. Gandhi is one who said nonviolence is a weapon of the strong. He also, Gandhi, was very much influenced by today's passage and the entire Sermon on the Mount. 
He wrote that this Sermon on the Mount influenced the nonviolent strategies he used in India. It's important to know that it's not enough to say no weapons. I think many of us um, are probably comfortable saying, you know, I'm not, the first thing I'm not going to do is bring a, a weapon to a conversation. <laughs> uh, you know, weapon ownership is a different matter. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is most of us are not going to be inclined to just start with a weapon. And so we'd say, you know, on average, many of us believe that we are nonviolent and are nonviolent and take a pledge not to be violent. But there's a lot more to nonviolent resistance than just taking that pledge. It's not enough to just say, I will not use weapons against people. And, and some people, you know, they have a very clear point of when they will. And I'm not talking about domestic disputes. I'm not talking about uh, people attacking someone. I'm talking about organized campaigns to make a change in the world. That's the peace practice we're talking about right here. There's different strategies that you would use in different circumstances. It was Reverend Lawson who trained people for the lunch counter sit-ins and the merchant boycotts in the South. The training took a year. And what he was doing was preparing folks to not be afraid. He taught them to react to violence by turning the other cheek and even taking blows. Nonviolence is a disciplined approach. It's a very intentional and measured approach. It's not passive or submissive. It has a very clear purpose. The discipline and the training to not create or return opposition takes a lot of work. Just think about the ways that we can respond when we see pictures on TV of entire communities not wearing masks. Like, if you people would just wear masks, we could all go out in public and get back to or move forward to whatever's next. Mm -mm. We are not in the business of nonviolent resistance to create enemies. I can't tell you the number of times in these past weeks where I've said, I wonder where they're getting their information from. I wonder where people who are not wearing masks or don't have one in their pocket ready to put on if they come in contact, where are they getting their information from? Whose agenda is behind that information? One of the places where I learned to resist um, sort of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was in lifeguard training. And I know several of you uh, were lifeguards when you were younger. And some of you may become lifeguards as you age. But as a lifeguard, you remember that the interest of a lifeguard is the common good. We want everyone to have fun and to be safe. We don't want anybody to get hurt. No injuries, no drownings. And so when someone is 
flailing and clearly needs help. The way you approach a person really matters. And there are several different techniques to maintain or to gain contact with the person and then to maintain their safety as you're bringing them to a wall or to shore, as the case may be. But sometimes in the course of that rescue, a person who is very scared and a person who thinks they're in danger is going to start flailing. And now two lives are in danger, not just one. So there might be one instinct to punch the person in the nose and to get them to stop, or to just let go and let them drown. But that's, that's not what you do as a lifeguard. The technique is that you, depending upon which way they're flailing, you go with them. So if they're rolling one way, you roll, and you just make it into a complete somersault like on a kayak. You roll with them. You do not return the opposition. Nonviolent resistance has similar rules. When it came to the lunch counter, always face the counter. Be polite and courteous to people. Wear your Sunday best. Make sure people who are boycotting stores are not blocking any entrances. And what this did, as we know, is it exposed severe resistance and brutality. John Lewis, who was a student of Reverend Lawson, adds another layer of this, which you will also recognize as part of the Christian gospel. The essence of nonviolent life is the capacity to forgive. The capacity to forgive and to understand that your attacker is as much a victim as you are. Whether it be a victim of, of misinformation, a victim of alternative training. The only way to make a change and to get your way is to employ violence. Research shows that it's safer to not be violent. And one of the significant variables for success in nonviolent resistance is the number and diversity of people who participate. So it's how many people are working with you, what's the diversity of your group, and is this group able to maintain discipline, and clear thinking, and to not be drawn off the goal. So now let's revisit scripture in this light for a moment. Let's think about scripture as a movement of liberation, as a movement for people who are under savage persecution. John the Baptist tries to call people to a meeting early on, says, this God movement is coming close. Are you in or are you out? Are you going to commit your life to this or not? And then there's another meeting with people flocking out to the wilderness. In other words, to a place where they can meet. And then Jesus starts to recruit people. You know, Jesus is brought into this by John the Baptist or by the Spirit, depending on how you want to look at that. And then Jesus starts to recruit people for this movement because numbers matter. 
You all come with me and I'll train you to net people, he said to the fishermen. You know, come follow me is what you may be remembering. And so this ministry, this movement builds over time. Relook at scripture this week and look at it through this lens and you'll be like, oh my gosh, that Palm Sunday event really was a counter demonstration. And the nonviolent practice of Jesus really did expose the anger and the hatred and the rejection of this other way because it compromised the power of the leaders. Because everything is fine as long as everybody stays in their place. But nonviolent resistance says no. No to that world order. No to that power distribution. No. There's just us. And we are equal and loved in God's eye. And so we turn to our teachers now to help us reframe, to help illuminate those places in our mind where we have been indoctrinated in the ways of power over versus power with. And we listen to Austin Channing Brown, to Ibram Kendi, to Brian Stevenson. We read the 1619 Project. We read the indigenous people's history of the United States to expand our narrative. You've heard it said that, but I say to you, the Spirit confronts us as practitioners and practices Practicers of nonviolence, the Spirit says, wait a minute, do your homework. Get your training. Understand where this is coming from. A full year they were trained to not be afraid to speak up or to stand, to use your body as a presence. I'm going to end with a quote and then we're going to go back to the poll. And this is an important one because as, as Christians, we understand the primacy of love. But listen to this expanded narrative about love. And this is from Austin Channing Brown. Again, love not being passive or submissive or just accepting anything. That's not love. Austin Channing Brown says, I need a love that is troubled by injustice. A love that is provoked to anger when black folks, including our children, lie dead in the streets. A love that can no longer be concerned with tone because it is concerned with life. You know that distraction of like, you know, you got to be polite about it. No, no you don't. You got to stay focused on what matters. A love that has no tolerance for hate, no excuses for racist decisions, no contentment in the status quo. I need a love that is fierce in its resilience and sacrifice. I need a love that chooses justice. So let's see. Let's see how we did on our nonviolent poll. And I'm sure I've said more than enough to give you something to think about this week. How many methods of nonviolent action have been identified? Okay, equal distribution because these numbers are so random, but the actual answer is 198. 
Uh, and this is the politics of nonviolent action by Gene Sharp. He did this research. And I'm going to tell you some of my favorites uh, are prayer and worship, humorous skits and pranks, performance of plays and music and singing, uh, walkouts and student strikes. I'm not trying to suggest anything here. I'm just telling you my favorites. And overloading of administrative systems, you know, when the phones go down. Number two, historically speaking, which method has a higher rate of success in promoting change? You are absolutely right on. Nonviolent action, 96% of you. The other 4%, I think you've heard why that's not true now, or just that it's not. Uh, research doesn't bear it. What are the requirements for, for participating in nonviolent resistance? You must be 12 or older. You must have a high school diploma. You must be able to stand or march for three hours or none of the above. Overwhelming, the answer is yes, none of the above. Just a click away. For those of you who are not mobile and not able to go places, use your computer. Use your phone. Write a letter. You can be involved. You can add to the diversity. And you can practice nonviolence. Which of the following leaders use nonviolent resistance to create change? Christian and Mike Song, Sue Krushak, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, absolutely, Dorothy Day, yes, Betty Williams, all of the above. Yeah, you're on to me now, because the answer is all of the above. Those first two people are just ordinary folks. Uh, Christian and Mike Song helped to change legislation related to gun storage and safety, public health issue. They're not opposed to weapons and people owning weapons, but they want to make sure that the people who own them are accountable to how they're stored. Their son died of an accidental gunshot. That's how they got involved. Sue Krushak, another public health and public safety concern, opioid addiction. Her son, Nick, died of an overdose. He was addicted for years, uh, got his first taste in the locker room before hockey practice. It's a horrible story. But what Sue did as a nonviolent resistance to this is just the way we do medicine, she, if you may know this, she's the one who sent a Valentine's Day card to President Trump. She's been to the White House now three times. She's appeared on Fox News several times. And she has made changes in the opioid epidemic and how opioids are spread. So folks, I offer you those two examples and everyone else on that list as a reminder that you too can have an impact. From the inside of your home, if you can't go out right now, or to actually going out and being part of a demonstration, because now you know that numbers matter. 